The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. My name is Robbie. I'm the middle adult pastor. I'm excited to preach to you today. We will be in Genesis 24, Isaac and Rebekah. Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It's interesting that God dedicates the longest chapter not to Noah's flood or the creation account, but to a marriage, a love story, if you will, a little bit of Romeo and Juliet. But this is more than 10 steps on how to find a godly wife. The marriage of Isaac and Rebecca was the next link in the chain of redemptive history, the next link in the genealogy to, to Jesus. If you study the lineage of Jesus, you find it was dependent on a whole genealogy of marriages with Isaac and Rebekah being one of them. Another interesting detail is, is how God brings this marriage together. Abraham, understanding that Isaac must have a wife for the seed of the woman to advance, he sends his, his best servant on a 500-mile camel ride across the desert to Abraham's homeland to find a wife. That's a long way on the back of a camel. It'd be like going from, from Charlotte to Disney World on a horse. That's got to leave a sore spot. <laughs> but through a powerful act of providence and prayer, God fulfills his covenant promise. He provides Isaac, Rebecca, and the lineage to Jesus continues. So my desire this morning as we highlight this text is that we will stand in awe of God's sovereign love and that he has brought this great gospel to bear in such a providential way. So with these thoughts, let's, let's stand and read Genesis 24, just one through nine because of the length of the text. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if a woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine only. You must not take my son back there. 
So the servant put his son under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, use your word to bring comfort to your people. Comfort us today in the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Verse 1. Don't let that scare you. We're not going all 67. (laughs) Verse 1 says, Abraham was old. He's well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in all things. So this is a unique season in Abraham's life. In the previous chapter, Genesis 23, we learn that Sarah, Abraham's wife, the matriarch of Israel, has passed away, leaving a void in the family. Scripture speaks of her tent being empty, meaning there's, there's, no, there's currently no wife to continue the gospel promise. If you remember in Genesis 17, 19, God told Abraham that Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So in order for Isaac to have offspring, he needs a wife. In addition, Abraham is a little older. Verse 1 says he's now well advanced in years. He's aged a bit. For those who, who like Bible trivia, the Jews divided old age into three stages. 60 to 70 was called the commencement of old age. 70 to 80 was called the hoary years, meaning all the hair on your head glows in the dark, basically. Complete gray. Some of you are about there. I'm getting there too, so don't worry. But Abraham is past that age. He's in what they call the well-stricken years. He's, He's now 140 And the Bible says he will live another 35 years before he dies. Now, studying this, I was amazed at the detail of the Bible. It's extraordinary that we know so much about this one family that lived 4,000 some years ago in tents on the edge of the desert between Israel and Egypt. Think about it. There were millions of other people living at that time. And we know a few facts about a few other kings, but concerning Abraham, we know so many details, even the color of his hair. What a testimony to God's providence in preserving this gospel for us to see and believe. So taking all that into account, Sarah's death, Abraham's old age, and even Isaac, who is now 40, The time had come for Abraham to find a bride for his son. So you can sense, you ought to sense, a little anticipation, a holy anticipation in Abraham. There's a burden here that Abraham wants to see Isaac advance the gospel through the seed of the woman. This was a big deal. You know, if God doesn't provide the wife, there's not a future Messiah. I was reading this story with my kids the other day and asked them what it would be like if all we had was Genesis 1 through 24. They had a puzzled look on their face. No wife, no Jesus. 
No Genesis 24, no John 3.16. So this is massive. But God, in his sovereign grace, he gives Abraham faith to act. And in verses 1 through 9, Abraham summons his most respected servant to go on a wife-finding mission. And for whatever reason, this, this servant is unnamed throughout the whole story. Some scholars believe it, it, it's Eliezer of Damascus. You know, if you're into typologies, he could be sort of a type of John the Baptist. He's a man preparing the way for the gospel. But Abraham, he summons his servant and he makes an oath with him. He makes an oath with four conditions to follow. The first is in verse three. So look at verse three, you get this first one. The wife cannot come from the daughters of the Canaanites. Now, if, if you remember, Abraham is now living in Beersheba, which is the land of the Canaanites. So, so to marry one of those would be to marry an unbeliever. And God clearly teaches all throughout the Bible that believers are not to do this. Second condition. Because of this, the servant will have to travel 500 miles to Mesopotamia, to Abraham's homeland. Because the wife must come within Abraham's kindred from his ancestry. And third, this is a long trip. Isaac will probably want to come along with the servant, but Abraham says, no, Isaac cannot come on the journey. And Abraham is adamant on this point. He hits it hard. Look at verse 6. He says, servant, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Now, why is Abraham so adamant that Isaac not go on the joyride? Well, God had promised Abraham new descendants in a new land. So to send Isaac back could only mean unbelief which is doubting God's power to fulfill his promise. Then in verse seven, look at verse seven. Abraham begins to commission his servant. And he says, God will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son there. In other words, God's got this thing. He's got this. If this is how the wife is to be found, you know, Abraham's acting here in accordance with God's word, taking a little bit of a risk. He doesn't know exactly that this is going to work out. But if this, is, if this is how the wife is to be found, God will provide. It's his promise to provide the wife. John Calvin wrote, here, in Abraham, here Abraham has simple reliance on the providence of God. That's what he's doing. He's trusting God. Proverbs 16.33 says this, we may throw the dice, get the camels together, but the Lord determines how they fall. God is in charge of the results. Then in verse 8, look at verse 8, he says, but if a woman is not willing to follow you, then you're free from this oath. That means come on home and chill out. We'll figure out another way. That's what he's, kind of, kind of what he's saying there. So the final condition 
is that the woman must be willing to go. Now think about that for a minute. Even if she is the perfect candidate, she hits all the marks. But if she is not willing to marry Isaac, the deal is off. And I was thinking about the Christian message. Christianity in general is not a, it, Christianity is not a religion of force. And in the, in the New Testament, Jesus told Peter to what? Put away the sword. So God doesn't force his way. This is an arranged marriage, yes, but it is a willing marriage. She must choose to marry Isaac. So full of courage, full of faith, the servant seals the oath by placing his hand under the thigh of Abraham, which is near the powers of procreation. This might seem a little odd place to shake hands, but the location was significant. For this location referenced circumcision, most likely. It was the, the sign of the covenant. The servant is making a vow to act in accordance with God's covenant promises. So they load up the caravan of camels, the gold, the valuables, all the things that God had blessed Abraham with, and the servant heads out to Mesopotamia. Now talk about making a first impression. This guy is about to roll into a new town with a bunch of bling bling and camels. You know, Abraham knows how to get the lady's attention. You know, show him the gold and the camels, what's probably be a Mercedes Benz today, and that gets the lady's attention. Attention, maybe, not all ladies, but some. Then, then after weeks of travel, look at verse 11. After weeks of travel, verse 11 says the servant stops for a drink at a popular well just, out the, just outside the city of Nahor, which is Abraham's brother's hometown. Now, th this was a popular spot. Many of the local women would gather here in the evening to draw water. So you got to picture the servant here. He's looking out over. He just arrived, a little tired. He's looking out, and he, 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 God compels him to pray. Pray. Pray for me to move. And then look at verse 12. In verse 12, this is his prayer. We'll, we'll read this prayer. It says, O Lord, Sovereign Lord, by the way, Yahweh. God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast covenant love to my master. So two things has got to happen to get this woman. Two things. Number one, the woman must say yes to the servant's request for a drink of water. She's got to say yes to that. Now, that, that might seem pretty simple. Think, 
You're in the desert. You know, it's only basic, you know, human nature, I guess, in a sense, common grace, whatever, politeness, common politeness. It's only common to offer a drink to somebody who's in need of, of, of water. But the second part is a little more interesting. He has, he has 10 thirsty camels who've just trekked 500 miles across the desert. They thirsty. They need water. But here's the, here's the hard part. He isn't going to ask her to water the camels. She's got to volunteer to water them. That's on her. So God's got that part. That's what he's saying. God's got to get that part. The hard part is his. Now, to get the significance of the camel water thing, you got to get some camel facts. And I went to Animal Planet and got some. When you read the Bible, sometimes you have to go to Animal Planet to understand it. It's okay. This is not general knowledge. A thirsty camel can drink up to 32 gallons of water. Any fish tank lovers in here? Ever tried to move a 32-gallon fish tank? You'll break it. You'll break your back, too. A gallon of water weighs about eight pounds. And, and, and think about this. You didn't have a plastic bucket from Lowe's. So you had a ceramic jar back then. And, and a ceramic jar to scoop that was two pounds just for the jar. So you add all that together. You got any mathematicians in the room? Put that together. 32 gallons of water, eight pounds, add two more pounds for a ceramic jar. That's 320 pounds of water she's moving, including 80 to 100 descents into the well. So somebody with a whole lot more time than I did decided to, to practice this, and he came up with, it's going to take her two to three hours to do this. Two to three sweaty hours to do this. Wow, you know, if this is the woman, what a, what a great wife for Isaac. Proverbs 31 all the way. A great servant. But all this made me think a little bit. Let me think a little bit. Many of us, including me and probably you, and I know a lot of other people, may think something like, you know, they would probably have, have asked God for a miracle here. You know, skip the water stuff, God. Just give me a burning bush. You know, make her face glow or something. Just reveal her in a miraculous way, but no. Instead, the servant prays for God's will to be revealed in just an ordinary way through the watering of camels on the fringe of the desert. And this teaches us something about ordinary things. This is your growth group lesson today. I'm setting you up. God works in the ordinary things of life. That's a cool thing about Providence. Divine providence. What can seem like little things. Reading your Bible with your kids. Reading your Bible alone. Acts of service toward one another. Even attending a growth group on a regular basis. Church too. What can seem like little things are actually big things in the kingdom of God. God does the extraordinary through the ordinary. Often he does that. Then look at verse 15. It's my favorite part. One of my favorite parts. So verse 15. Before he had finished, before the servant had finished speaking and praying, behold, Rebecca, 
who was born, and be, born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. In other words, she's Abraham's great niece. Make that connection. She's Abraham's great niece. He, she comes out with her water on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no one had known. She's a virgin. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Now, don't miss the beginning of that prayer, the beginning of that. He says, before he had finished praying, she shows up. That's good. Not after he prayed, but as he was praying, Rebecca, a beautiful woman who has been kept pure, shows up. So in mid-prayer, Rebecca is revealed. The Bible interprets itself. Isaiah 65, 24 says this, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Think about that for a minute. Before you pray, God's already orchestrating things. He's got this. He's in control. Somebody asked me one time, why pray if God is sovereign? Have you ever been asked that before? Have you ever thought that before? Why pray if God is sovereign? That's the wrong question. Why pray if he's not sovereign? Don't you want to pray to someone who can do something about it, folks, who answers prayers in mid-sentence? Timothy Keller in his book, Prayer, he says this, it is part of God's goodness and appointment that he allows the world to be susceptible to our prayers. How, does, how he does this, how he maintains control of history and yet still makes human prayer and action responsible within history is one of the most practical mysteries of the Bible. Friends, God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to be people of prayer. Yes, God is sovereign. The Bible is clear. But it is also clear that the prayers of believers are powerful and effective. In addition, pocket this too, prayer is essential for the advancement of the gospel. That's what he's doing here. God is advancing the gospel through prayer. Quote, we will only advance in our evangelistic work as fast and as far as we advance on our feet and on our knees. We must be a praying people if we are going to penetrate this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. It convicted me this week. I need to be a man on my knees. Then in verse 17, look at it. Verse 17. God begins to advance the gospel through prayer. Look, after the servant saw Rebekah, he ran to meet her and, and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she, she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Now, 
Can you imagine the pulse rate on this guy? You know? I'm sure if it was me, I'd be like, I'd be like whispering under my breath, I'd be going, yes, the water, the camels. <laughs> oh my goodness. God answers prayer mid-sentence. But he, he, he doesn't get too carried away. Why? He doesn't get too carried away because remember, he has to do all of this, the whole deal. If the only water is 9.5 of the camels, I don't, I don't know how you would do that. But if the only water is nine of the 10 camels, the deal is off. It's not of God. He gets back home and goes back to Abraham on the camels. But here's the cool thing. After two to three sweaty hours of just watching this Proverbs 31 woman, in verse 22, look, Rebecca completes it all. What would you do at this point? Here's what the servant does. He just, he just runs over to her. Here's some gold. You know, this text reads like that. Just here, take this gold and this jewelry. You can, can you imagine her thought here? Now, who is this guy? Now, I've watered his camels. I gave him some water. And now he's pulling out all this bling bling. You know, she's probably, she, you know, if it were me, I'd probably be thinking he was some Egyptian tomb raider on the run. You know, maybe he stole Ramses II's gold. I don't know. But, but in the end, we'll summarize here. But in the end, Rebecca welcomes the servant. She recognizes this is a work of God. And in verses 22 through 49, they go to her family to share the news. And remember this, though. She's going to the family to share the news. She hadn't heard the whole story yet. All she knows at this point is there's a rich man hanging around the water hole with a whole lot of money in his pocket. Then as, as they arrive, Laban, Rebecca's brother, runs out to meet them. Very hospitable. Watch out for Laban, though. He comes up later in, in Genesis 29. He's a lover of money more than a lover of God. But then in verse 34, the servant unpacks the whole story, and the family acknowledges it's a work of God. Look at verse 58. They summon Rebecca around them. By the way, this is the purpose of parenthood, to send your kids out. They summon Rebecca around them and they call her to her side and they say, will you go with this man? And the text reads, she doesn't hesitate. And she just says, yes, I'll go. I see God's at work and I want to be a part. And I was like, wow. You know, God has been working both ends here. You know, he's been working the heart of Rebecca. He's been working the heart of Isaac. He's bringing this marriage together. This is not by chance. This is not by fate. This is a work of God. And after all of this, the servant, he responds in worship. He responds in worship of God for what he's doing. I couldn't help but think that What's the ultimate purpose of the gospel? To bring sinners into a worship relationship with God Almighty. He's worshiping God, the chief end of man. 
Now, take a deep breath for a minute because you got to remember this. Abraham and Isaac did not have FaceTime and they did not have Facebook. They haven't seen any of this. They're three to four months back home just waiting to hear, just waiting. And I picture, I picture Psalms 135 in my head. It says, this is the heart of Abraham and Isaac as they wait. They, they say this, Psalms 135 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. So they're kind of like watchmen here. They're eagerly looking out. You can see them just eagerly looking out over that horizon every day. Will God do it again? Will he fulfill his promise once again? Is the bride coming? Is Isaac going to unite to her in the gospel? Is it going to continue? Well, let's just read the rest of the story and let it speak. Verses 61 through 67. Now Isaac, 61. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Laha Roy. Took me two weeks to get that word right. Beer Laha Roy. And was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Isaac lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, remember this, the first time she sees Isaac, he is on his knees, praying, meditating. Wow. She dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it's my master. So she, she took her veil and covered herself and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And that's the key there. Isaac was comforted. The tent was empty, but now it's full. There was a void in the family that only the gospel could fill. The gospel seed continues. Now, I like hearing the gospel in Genesis, and here's a, little, here's a little thread of gospel in Genesis right here. Centuries later, God calls another woman to advance the gospel. In Matthew 1, the angel of the Lord appeared and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In other words, comfort has come. At the cross, God made the way for sinners to be forgiven and reconciled to God. God comforts his people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what? So what this morning? Simple question. Do you, are you 
finding comfort in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says this. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Jesus springboards out of this and says in John 14, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Friends, brothers, sisters, the comfort of God is not like the comfort of the world. The world will tell you that comfort comes from being healthy and having a secure financial life. And there can be nothing wrong with those things. God often blesses with common comforts. But the comfort of the gospel is not the absence of strife, nor is it the presence of financial peace. The comfort of the gospel is the presence of God. The world can't give you that. Only Christ can. And that's one reason I love the book of Genesis. Man was created to know the comfort of God, to enjoy him, to abide in him, to have the Holy Spirit, the great comforter. But because the fall, because of the fall, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden of God's presence, his comfort. As a result, all people, all people are born separated from God. And the effects of this are massive. We live in a world today of people who need the presence of God. They need the peace of God. You need the peace of God. I need the peace of God. Before I preach this sermon today, I sat in my office because I don't naturally like getting up in front of people. It scares me a little bit. But God just showered me with his presence as I was reading his word. And I got courage to come up here and preach. Let me tell you something. The power to live the Christian life comes from basking in the presence of God. That's the power to live holy, to go on mission for God. He compels his people by his presence. But I'm saddened because I look out and there's so many people in need of God's presence today. So many people. My sons, and they're not believers, but you all know what I'm talking about. People need Jesus. Blaise Pascal, an anointed writer, wrote this one time. It just stuck with me my whole life. He said this, There was once in man a true happiness of what's there now remained to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to feel with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss, this void, 
can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Here's the good news. The infinite abyss, the void, can only be filled by Jesus Christ. And he has accomplished salvation for us to fill us with all the fullness, Ephesians, to fill us with all the fullness of God. So unbeliever today, maybe you're like, man, I have no idea what the presence of God is like. If you're hopeless today and you're in need of the comfort that covers all sin, all shame, all fear, come to the Lord Jesus and receive rest for your weary soul. Believe the gospel and know the Abba Father presence of God, the peace that passes all understanding. Have you ever sat in the presence of God? I promise you this, you won't want to leave. Think about Jesus in the transfiguration. He didn't want to leave. Believers, there's an ultimate comfort a coming. There's a future marriage on the horizon. Jesus said, he's coming back. Like Isaac, he's coming to get his bride. And Revelation 21, two through three says this, and I'm done. He says, and I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven is on the horizon. One day we will, believer, you will bask in the unadulterated presence of God. So rejoice and be glad today. If you're a believer, rejoice and be glad and share the good news and comfort each other with these words. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess my ultimate need is your presence. I need you. The people in this room, they need you. Lord, we cannot fabricate your presence. We're not seeking emotionalism, Lord God. We're seeking you. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added. So pray, Lord, have mercy on us today. Fall on your people as they go from here. Fall on your people as they go in their homes. Fall on your people. Cause them, energize them by the spirit of the living God to live holy lives on mission for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.